please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke. And we are continuing in a series of messages I entitled Follow Me because that, that's at the heart of it. Jesus' invitation to those who would place their faith and trust in him to follow him in a life of obedience uh, to the principles that he teaches us here in the divinely inspired word of God. We're looking at a portion that I know is very familiar to just about everybody, and that's good. Sometimes we can look at it in a different perspective, and God will enlighten us to some truths that will help us to walk closer to him and have a better understanding of how God sees the world and how he sees us and, and others. And so we're going to uh, be looking at chapter 15. One of my favorite Bible teachers years ago, Dr. J. Vernon McGee, he was on radio. And that tells you something. <laughs> it's before TV preaching became a big thing. But Dr. J. Vernon McGee had a radio Bible teaching uh, uh, program. And I, I, whenever I could, I'd like to listen to it. And he was just a unique kind of a teacher, kind of down to earth, uh, yet profound teaching using the word of God before expository preaching was cool. He was going through the Bible verse by verse. In fact, the title of his radio program was Through the Bible with J. Vernon McGee. And so I remember in one of his commentaries on this particular text, uh, he was talking about when he was a little boy, they, his family went to his aunt's house. I think the, there's like a family reunion going on. She lived in one of these big old uh, mansion type houses, if you will, old, uh, uh, big colonial type houses. And, and so there was a big crowd there. So all the bedrooms were full. And so uh, his aunt had made a makeshift bedroom upstairs in the attic. And so he got to sleep upstairs. And so he thought that was pretty cool. And so, but the thing that really fascinated him was that she had interest in antiques everywhere and, and unique keepsakes that, that were a part of her collections, if you will. And so he would be up there kind of rummaging around and looking. And so he was describing how one night he, he found what he called was a, a triptych. And uh, I don't know if any of y'all, anybody know what a triptych is? Anybody have any? Okay, Wendy, Wendy, she, Fran. Yeah. How many of y'all know what a feather tick is? See, that's really dating myself. I've got straw tick. That's the type of mattress that's filled with feathers. A trip tick is actually a, a, a picture that consists of three individual pa uh, panels. And, and each of the panels, though distinct in the picture that, that is encased in each of them, each of them, uh, each of those distinct pictures connect with a central theme, a common theme. And so he was talking about that as he was talking about the parable, parables that we're going to look at that Jesus is teaching here in Luke chapter 15. And, and you know, the Lord masterfully you know, teaches and, and his teaching, of course, captures our, our attention and nobody could teach like the Lord Jesus. I mean, my goodness, he is the son of God. He is the very master teacher himself. And so in Jesus's teaching, he uses, you know, these types of styles. So Jesus, instead of painting a picture of three panels, he's using uh, a panel of three parables. And so just keep that in mind as we open up in, in chapter 15. Now, we know that as we have been progressing through the Gospel of Luke at this stage in Jesus's earthly ministry, he's in the region of Judea, which means he's making his way towards Jerusalem. It's just a matter of months before he'll be facing the Sanhedrin in a kangaroo court. He'll be uh, viciously treated uh, and, and, uh, and then executed on the cross. So as he's going through the region of Jerusalem, of Judea, on his way to Jerusalem, it would stand the reason that he's encountering more and more of the religious elite, the religious leaders who are coming out to check him out keep an eye on him, report back to headquarters. And of course, we know this, the, the, the scribes and the Pharisees show up a lot in Jesus's earthly ministry. They're constantly scrutinizing everything he teaches. They're challenging him. They are debating him. They are trying to discredit him. They're going so far as to say this man uh, has special powers, not by God, but by Beelzebub, the devil. So that, that's the kind of interaction that's going on between Jesus and these scribes who are considered to be experts in the law and then the pharisees 
who are considered to be the experts in religion. And so they make up a big part of the Sanhedrin and consider themselves to be the most righteous people in all of Israel. Of course, we know that to be self-righteous. It's a righteousness based on, on works, not a righteousness based on genuine faith in God. And so as we, as we open up here in chapter 15, it says, Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him to hear him. Verse 2, And the Pharisees and scribes, there they are, murmured, whispered between themselves, saying, This man, speaking of Jesus, receives sinners and eats with them. As if, ah, oh, can you believe it? You know, he's constantly surrounding themselves with the riffraff of society and has the audacity to even have open fellowship with this crowd. Of course, you know, the tax collectors were regarded as, as, as by fellow Jews as being traitors because they worked for the Roman Empire collecting taxes from their fellow citizens. They were considered to be thieves because they, you know, unjustly charged people way too much for the taxes and things like that. So, yeah, they, they, they were a lower class of people. But then there was this generic group that are called sinners. And these are just basically people that the Pharisees and scribes and all the, you know, super religious just said they're not like us. You know, they're the, they're the low class, the leftovers in society. These, these are the people who are not especially religious. They were certainly not socially accepted. And so, you know, the tax collectors and the sinners, if you got thrown into that group, forget it. You probably wouldn't prosper in a Jewish society. You probably wouldn't advance in, in your aspirations and things like that. So these are the undesirables that Jesus finds around him. Not to say that they were the only people to gather around him. As I said, the religious leaders, and then there were respectable, socially acceptable people out there at, at the same time. But, but as we begin to unfold this triptych of parables, I'd like to present first what I consider the, the parables of thematic introduction. The, the two small parables that are certainly related to the majority parables that will follow, but they kind of lay the groundwork. They kind of set the theme that, that uh, you, you'll see Jesus focusing upon as he goes through this. And the, and the theme, the theme that we'll see played out in all of these parables is this, God's deep love for the lost. God's deep love for the lost. All of us at one time were lost, unsaved, separated out of fellowship with God and estranged alienated, as Paul said in Colossians 1, 2. So the theme is highlighting God's deep love for the lost. I don't know about you, but I'm glad. I'm thankful. I am elated that God loved me so much that he was pursuing me as a lost sinner. He never gave up on me. He loved me in the deepest, darkest time of my sinful life. He never took his eyes off of me. Nor did he ever take his eyes off of you. He never threw in the towel on any of us. At times when others may reject us and call us, you know, outcast and things like that. And so as we look at the first two parables, and again, all of these are familiar with you. So, so it's not nothing, it's nothing new textually that we're looking at, but I want us to look at it in maybe different perspectives. So we're going to first of all look at the parables that Jesus tells related to the lostness. First of all, lost sheep and a lost coin. So if you will, there in your scriptures, look with me there in verse four. Jesus says, What man of you having a hundred sheep? If he loses one of them, does not leave the 99 in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. So the first thing I want you to consider are the motives of what I call the persistent seekers. The motive of the persistent seekers, because dear friend, as I just shared with you from my own personal experience, God is a persistent seeker after those who are lost. He doesn't write you off. doesn't throw up his hands. 
If he's got his eyes set on you and he's chosen you from the foundation of the world to be one of his people, he's going to pursue you. He's seeking you. And, and so the, the here's a shepherd who's helping to tend to a hundred sheep and one of them ends up getting lost. Sheep are so silly. Sheep are so easily distracted. They're, they're kind of dumb as animals, not nearly as, as smart as your pet dog, you know, or cat. I say that tongue in cheek. I'm not, but anyway, so, so, but they, one of them's wandered off. Now he's got 99, but, you know, commentator I was reading on, on this passage said that, first of all, a, 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 a herd of 100 sheep is, is probably more than one man would actually be able to tend by himself, which suggested there was a co-op going on there. And, and two, shepherds. Shepherds in, in that society in, in Jesus' day, first century Palestine, shepherds were at the lowest rung of the socioeconomic ladder. I mean, people, they, they, you couldn't even, a shepherd couldn't even testify in court. They weren't trusted. They, you know, they didn't have money. So they just worked this lowly job of tending out the dumb sheep, you know. And so he was probably watching somebody else's sheep along with the group. Otherwise, that's probably why he left the 99 out in the open field because there were other shepherds who were watching them while he took off after this lost sheep. His motive was the value of that sheep. He knew to the owner that that sheep was, was money. And, and, and it's possible this this may have been one of his own sheep. But the fact is, he's pursuing it because he's thinking, if I'm tending somebody's sheep and I lose one and I go back to report, I may lose my job. So he's compelled to get out there on this dangerous journey to seek after this sheep. And it's probably getting dark and out in the wilderness. You know, a sheep doesn't stand any chance of survival hardly because they can't defend themselves, can't run and hide. You know, a sheep is so defenseless and so helpless that, that one scholar was saying that if a sheep was laying down and he accidentally rolled up on his back with his feet sticking straight up in the, lid, in the air, he couldn't roll over. He couldn't get, get his feet back down to the ground. So he's laying there like, you know, all you can eat pork chops, I mean, not lamb chops, you know. And eventually, because of the gastric, you know, juices in his stomach beginning, it causes belly to swell. He eventually just died. I mean, that's how helpless and out in the wilderness at night he wouldn't survive. No, the wild animals would sniff him out in a heartbeat. So this 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 shepherd is seeking that sheep, and he's motivated. Now let's jump down to verse eight because we're carrying along these two parables together, and Jesus tells another parable of the lost coin. You've, you've heard it, read it before. And he asked the question, or what woman, having 10 silver silver coins, and, and, and scholars say that's probably a, a, a drachma, which uh, in that time was equivalent to a day's wage, kind of like the Roman denarius, that was equal to about a day's wage. So it's pretty good value. That's your whole paycheck for a day. This woman probably had the 10 coins some speculate that this was probably her wedding dowry, these 10 coins. And, and, and that represented to her financial security. And so, you know, every, every one of the coins were precious to her. So for, for her, her motive was, you know, not only the, the, the value of, of it uh, monetarily, but the value sentimentally, if it was her dowry. And so she doesn't just kind of lift up, you know, a, a, a placemat or, move a chair oh no it's like spring cleaning in this lady's house anybody going by knew it probably because she's in there wailing because she's lost that coin and not only that all the furniture is sitting out you know outside this is probably a dirt floor house as was typical at that time and she's sweeping up a storm i mean she's sweeping that house every corner every nook and cranny you know so people are watching this dust is pouring out of the door and out of the, and, and there were no windows because she had to light a, a lamp to see so she's motivated by strong sentimental attachment to that coin, and she's determined she's going to seek after it. But then as we look not just at the motives of the persistent seekers, but consider the response of these persistent seekers. Pers consider the response of the successful seekers, I should say. 
the successful. These stories have good endings. The, the, the shepherd, for instance, we were talking about that went out there to pursue the lost sheep that was out there in the wilderness. And, and, and he's thinking every minute that passes, that, that sheep doesn't stand a chance. In verse five, he says, and, and when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders. First of all, he said, there you are. Oh, great. Thank the Lord. And, and you'll notice he doesn't do what some of us may have done. You know, we wasted all this time out there in the wilderness. We're hot, and, I mean, cold and hungry. You know, it's getting dark and it's dangerous. And, and, and there's that crazy sheep, you know, and we probably just tie a rope around its neck, you know, and say, come on, I'll drag your legs off. I'll make you pay for making me. Yeah, no, no. See, this shepherd is just so thrilled that he picks that sheep up. And sheep sometimes weigh as much as 100 pounds. And he, and he picks this sheep up and lays him with his belly down on his shoulder and his feet extended down. And, and he's probably walking at a fast pace back to bring the sheep back. And I thought it was interesting that, you know, it says there as he found it, he, he lays it on his shoulder and he's rejoicing. Now, look at the times he mentions joy and rejoicing. Jesus is making a point here. And verse six is, and when he comes home, you'll notice he didn't just take him back to the fold. Where the other 99, the other shepherds? Oh, no. The word had gotten out. Oh, oh, Josiah, you know, the shepherd over there, he's lost one of Mr. So-and-so's sheep. And uh, he's out there searching for it. And they're probably thinking, oh, man, there he goes. He's going to lose another job. You'll have to work at McDonald's now. You know, good gracious. But, you know, it's, I'm, I apologize to any fast food workers in the crowd this morning. But the fact is, he comes back. He goes all the way home where his friends and his neighbors. And he says to them, rejoice with me. For I have found my sheep which was lost. And in the Greek text, that word lost is almost synonymous with perish. For a sheep to be lost is almost to say that sheep is gone. And so he's saying, hey, this was a dead sheep. And I'm bringing it back. Look, here it is. Bye. I've been working on that sheep call for all week. So there's great joy. There's great joy. Okay. And then finally, we look at, look at the diligent housewife as she invites her friends to share her rejoicing as we look there at verse 9. She's been sweeping. She's been searching. And then verse 9, and when she found it, there it is. She calls her friends and neighbors together saying, rejoice with me. I have found the peace which I lost. Now, there's a common theme running through these two parables that Jesus ties together for us. Go back in verse 7 with me and look what he says. He says, I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons, people who live by legalism, people who have worked their way into God's favor, so they think, who have who have won their righteousness by keeping the law, not mentioning any names, but their initials are Pharisee. But anyway, there you go. He says there's more joy in heaven, in heaven, not just in Jerusalem. He said in heaven, in the presence of God. Or better still, in the presence of the angels, which tells you if there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels, who's doing the rejoicing? God is. What does it mean to the Lord when one sinner turns to him with true repentance? Oh, listen, there's great, great joy breaking out up there. Look at verse 10. After the coin was found, Jesus says, likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Isn't that amazing? Because it just tells us there in verse two that the Pharisees and the scribes, when they see the tax collectors and the quote sinners, they, they've about written them all. There's no hope for these people. They don't know the law. They don't, they, they're not, they, they're not in, in the uh, synagogue. They're not, they're not coming to the temple to practice like we do. Now, we know we're in, but let's, why bother with that group? 
and, and Jesus in stark contrast is saying, hey, let me tell you what happens in the presence of the angels of God. Every time one of these tax collectors, every time one of these outcast sinners turns to God into repentance, he said, oh, let me tell you, there's a hallelujah course breaking out. What is your attitude towards society's undesirables? I mean, truly, what do you think about when you see people that might be addicted to drugs or caught up in a sinful lifestyle? You know, I want to challenge each of us as the redeemed to consider our attitude towards those who are unbelievers, those who are living in immorality, those who are sinfully pursuing the desires of the flesh and blindly adhering to false religions or cults. Listen, does your attitude resemble that of the scribes and the Pharisees? Like, I don't want to mess with those folks. I'm going to keep my distance from them. Or does your attitude resemble that that you see reflected in Christ? That's the thematic parables that serve as the introduction now to the big kahuga. I don't know what the kahuga is, but I've heard that expression. So here comes the big parables and this triptych of parables. Because now we're going to look at the parable of joyful redemption. I mean, you're saying, whoa, whoa, preacher, my Bible says that the parable of the prodigal lost son. Well, that's true. But I'm the one that put this message together. So I've got it entitled the parable of joyful redemption, because to me, that's what it is. It is. Well, and, and keep in mind that everything that Jesus is teaching, the scribes and Pharisees with their little Jewish notebooks, and every, every, uh, oh my goodness. Yeah. But, you know, they probably had no problem with the parable of the lost sheep because they said, yeah, yeah, that, that, that's, that's a good thing. That shepherd should go after that lost sheep. That, was, that makes good sense. Makes money, you know, that way we can have more money in the coffers in the temple. Sure, that's a good thing. Oh, yes, that lady should pursue after that coin. That's a smart thing to do. I mean, don't be wasteful, you know what I mean? I have no problem with those two parables, the introduction the thematic parables, but let's move on to talk about the parable of the joyful redemption. And I want you to keep your eyes on the scribes and Pharisees. I know you can't see them. Just imagine what's going on in their minds as Jesus is teaching, okay? Excuse me. In chapter 15, I want you to first of all consider the perilous consequences of sinful rebellion. Jesus is getting down to the nitty gritty now. In verse 11, he says, <clears throat> A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. Now, that doesn't sound like the way I would approach my dad when I was a kid or even a teenager. Like, Dad, give me the keys to the car. A little bit of cash, put some gas. <laughs> no, I'd be working myself up to a good, you know, Dad, you know, we, we had a lot of work done this week, didn't we? You know, got those barns in the back of filled up. And, man, that's going to be great, isn't it? Do you mind if I borrowed the station wagon, go on a date, you know? complete with this dust fins on the back, you know, cool-looking wheels. Yeah. Oh, 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 you know, Dad, I, I wish I, you know, I, I wish I had a job where I could go out and make cash, but I'm, I'm working here with you, but do you mind maybe springing with a few dollars so I can put some gas in there? Yeah. Oh, I, you don't just walk into O.C. Martin and say, look, give me the keys. Give me some money to uh, gas. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Give me something, all right. <clears throat> That's... Now, the Pharisees are listening, and the son is making an unthinkable demand to a Pharisee listening in on this conversation between this arrogant, you know, unappreciative son, and he's a younger son. He's, he's a low-ranking son. He's not even the oldest boy. And, and, and for him to say that, you see, an inheritance was typically divided when the father died. This estate was settled at, at the point of the father's death. And, of course, one third, uh, two thirds went to the older son because that was his blessing. <clears throat> and one third to the younger son. 
So for, for this son to go in, the younger son, to, to say this to his dad, was in essence saying, I wish you did. So I could get my share of, of the inheritance. I mean, it's basically what he's telling his dad. And the Pharisees are like, now, you can start seeing the legalistic antenna begin to go up now. They're looking at each other. <clears throat> They're probably thinking, this dad ought to reach down and get a two-by-four and wail that boy so he can't even hardly walk out the door and tell him, say, boy, don't you ever come back in here and be so disrespectful and don't you ever get so arrogant that you think that I'm just going to hand you over you're crazy, boy. Get out of here. That, and the Pharisees were saying, that's what he's going to say. Surely there's a good Jewish father. What does it say? It says there that he, the father, so he divided to them his livelihood. Graciously consented and, 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 and gave the, the younger son his portion And you know, that's how God is with sinners. We, every sinner, I don't care how atheistic they are, naturalistic they are, they owe God their life. Everything they have. You know, they're indebted to him whether they realize it or not. And isn't it amazing that a loving and a compassionate and a gracious God will allow sinners to go off on their own tangent instead of striking them dead with lightning. And so he did. Gave him his share of the inheritance. And not only that, what a dishonor. The Pharisees are probably thinking, oh my goodness, how, how could this happen? How could a Jewish father let his son disgrace him by making such a request and then complying? Both sons received their inheritance at that time. Verse 13 as if it wasn't bad enough. And not many days after, so as to imply, this is an impatient young man. He wasn't going to wait until the right time to, you know, take his share of the inheritance and maybe go across the, uh, the area and build his, his own land, his farm and set up house and that type of thing. Oh, no, not many days after that. This this younger son gathered all together. In other words, he liquidated his assets. You can't travel. You know, you got all these sheep and you got all this property and you got houses. I don't know what it all came with. His, you know, he had to liquidate it all, which means they had to go to an outside person outside the family who was willing to buy his share, give him cash, liquid assets, so he could get on out there and do his thing. So now somebody outside the family probably has got a share of the inheritance. And so the younger son takes that and he goes out. And he journeyed where? Across the county? No. Uh, maybe to a neighboring country? No. Jesus says, and he went to a far country. He wanted to put as much distance between himself and his father and his family and, and all those who might hold him accountable in some way. And boy, he was going to live the high life. You know? Wow. The big city. Well, we just know it was a country far away. And so he gathered it all together, went to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. I'm reading from the New King James Version, maybe different from yours. It, it, prodigal living is wasteful living. He's, he's, got his, he's got his his pockets are full. He comes into Las Vegas of, uh, you know, of, of uh, Syria. <laughs> He's, he's full of money, gold necklace he bought at the, you know, the pawn shop coming into town, rings on his fingers. He says, I'm here to party. Who wants to party? Oh, boy, people coming out from left and right. They're surrounding him, all of his friends. He's having a big time. And, and listen, as this, has been, as this is unfolding, the Pharisees, the scribes, are about to have a conniption. They said, oh, my goodness. Look what has happened to the father's inheritance. And this boy's out there living like a fool, living like some wild man. And verse 14. But when he had spent all, there was a severe famine in the land, in that land. 
and he began to be in want. And all of his buddies who parted with him and he spent all of his money on, gathered around him, took up a love offering and put him up and sheltered him. No, it's not my Bible because it's isn't yours. You better throw it away. No, no, no. He began to be in want. Where are you fair with the friends? They're gone. Man, they don't want, you don't have any money? Oh, I, I just remembered I got something to do. I'll catch you next year, maybe the year after. He's in a foreign country, broke, poorer than Job's turkey, and doesn't have two nickels to rub between in his fingers, and, and he's in a desperate situation. You say, well, how do you know that, preacher? Well, because Jesus tells that to us. Verse 15, then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country. Now, these are Gentiles, more than likely. He's a Jewish boy. And he, he's desperate. He can't even stand out on the street and beg and get anything. So he finds this farmer who raises pigs. And you know, the Jewish dietary laws forbade Jews to have dealings with unclean swine. And here he is going to go out and, and help this hog farmer. <clears throat> and he sent him out into the fields to feed swine. Now, if you were measuring the blood pressure of the scribes and the Pharisees about now, they're getting close to the stroke zone, okay? Not only is he going out and live like a fool, wasted his dad's money, now he's out there on a Gentile pig farm of son of Abraham. Man, they're thinking, you know, somebody ought to go get that boy and kill him. Now there's misery. And so this farmer sends him out into the field. He's saying, that, that's, that, I'm sure the Pharisees and scribes, the religious elite, were saying, that's as bad as it's going to get. You talk about hitting the bottom of the barrel. They, it can't get any worse than this. Oh, but wait. Jesus is just wanting to make sure he gets his point across. In verse 16. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that would be the pods of a carob tree, like an evergreen tree in the Mediterranean area. Pigs would root them up, eat those pods on, on the roots and all. And, and they say that you can make chocolate out of it, but or something that tastes like chocolate, but I haven't tried it. I don't recommend you do. He's gotten so low, so hungry, he's starving to death. He's looking at the pig's food and saying, he, wait a minute, wait a minute. Now, listen, on the farm, and I know those like Mark and others that grew up on the farm, one of the most undesirable tasks was feeding the hogs. Y'all ever heard of slop? I just can stand here before you today and tell you I never desired to join the hogs in eating slop because it was just all these Rotten leftovers. So, oh man, I'm getting hungry. But anyway, he couldn't eat those pods if he wanted to. Scholars say that these pods of the carob tree were indigestible for human. So if it wasn't so, there he is drooling, watching pigs eat and thinking, if I could just eat them, if I thought I could even digest them, who we? And the, and the religious elite are just going crazy. Verse 17. But when he came to himself. Don't miss that. When he came to himself. When, when things began to settle in to his mind. He said, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare? And I perish with hunger. You see, even a hired servant was not like your normal household servant. Household servants were treated with kindness. They, they were provided with things. You know, there was security in a good master's home. A hired servant was a day laborer. A day laborer. You didn't owe them anything. I mean, all the, all, you just paid them after they worked the day's wages. And you might not see them again. 
But he said to my father's house, my father is so generous and so compassionate that he even provides enough bread for his hired hands, the day laborers, and, and gives them not just enough to eat. They have plenty. And it's starting to dawn on him. He's beginning to remember what he left behind. And all of a sudden, he's realizing that the world is not where it's at. For him, it's back home in his father's home, under his father's care and guidance and supervision and provision. And you see a moment developing in his heart. Out of the depths of hopelessness came brokenness. Won't eat with the hogs. Confession. My goodness, my father's house is so much better than anything he at least would feed me and repentance. I'm going home. Some of you know what it's like. I do. To go home. I remember times when I was in college and, you know, all the kids were hit. We, we didn't all have cars. So I was in Winston-Salem. I'd get back home on the weekend. And, you know, I've been away from home for several weeks, you know, and, and so... I did what my mother absolutely forbade us to do. I put on a necktie, make me look respectable. Me and my buddy got a sign that said Roxborough, still that on I-40. Young people, do not do this. That's 1970. Because there was a long, a long, and I, I gotta go home. Well, after my mother and father wanted to kill me for being so crazy when I finally got home. Then they, they, they were glad to see me. But other than that, but this boy is longing now. Repentance causes you to turn. Remember? Metanaeo, the verb turn completely. 180 degrees turn away from sin. He's turning his back on the wild living, the, the false friends and all of that. And he's Looking back towards home, he says in verse 18, I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, which is synonymous to saying against God and before you. And I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Dad, if you'll just take me back, you don't even have to refer to me as your son. I'll come back and you can treat me like, like a hired servant. At least you'll feed me. He's practicing now. He's practicing the speech that he's going to say to his father when he gets back home. Okay? And, and make no mistake about it, the Lord Jesus is using the fictional character of the forgiven father because at this point we're looking at the amazing grace of a loving, forgiven father. The attention begins to shift from the prodigal, wild living boy who's now broken and, and, and confessed his sins and repentant and coming back. Now, how is the father going to respond? Because he's been disgraced, according to the Pharisees and the scribes. And so we pick up there in verse 20. And he arose and came to his father. Now, I imagine that the Pharisees at this time, the scribes, are thinking, okay, here's a chance for Josiah to redeem himself. This boy's going out there, the word's out, how he lived. I mean, you know, uh, even down in verse 30, his brother accused him of being with prostitutes and all of that. So anyway, they're saying, now the father can redeem himself. And in their mind, they could see somebody's reporting to the dad, hey, Believe it or not, we saw your boy coming down the road. Boy, he looks bad, but he smells worse. And the father would go out there with several strong-armed men and catch that tattered and stinking and broken, repentant boy and beat him within an inch of his life in public to show his absolute disgust. And the Pharisees are thinking, yeah. And then not only that, his dad will say, boy, if you ever want to show up on my household again, in my household, you're going to have to crawl on your knees and hands all the way through the village. Oh, it might take you a few days. So what? And then when you get there, you can sit at the gate until I decide 
that I want to let you in. Now, that's what the Pharisees are saying. Oh, boy, he's going to get it. They're thinking, boy, this kid's in for a hard time because daddy's coming to his senses. We know better because verse 20 tells us he arose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. How could his father see him if he was busy about his task and everything? Folks, I, I, I submit this to you. This father loved this boy. No matter what the reputation of his son was or what he had heard he had done, this father loved his boy. And I have to believe there wasn't a day went by, and I don't know how long the boy was gone, but I don't believe there was a day went by that his father didn't stand at the gate by the street looking up the road. Thank you. Maybe. Just maybe. Today will be the day. I don't even know if he's still alive. And on this day, it just so happened, Jesus tells us that the father was standing and he saw him. When he, when a great distance off, the father saw him and had compassion and ran. Any self-respecting Jewish man of status like this man was would never run in public. That was disgraceful. Because it showed your legs. Now imagine none of y'all going to see my legs. I remember being at Caswell one time with the youth, and uh, it's hot. And I had my shorts on, you know, and came into the house where we were. Vicky, you remember this? And I walked in with my shorts, and the kids all sitting in there, cooling off, and just you know having some relaxing time. And I walked in the door. Now, I know the kid's name. I don't recall his name because he's a young man now. But I walked in. And he said, "Hey, Pastor Charlie, are those your legs, or are you riding a chicken?" Never forgave him. I thought he had good-looking legs. But his father would never run. He wouldn't even walk fast. This father saw his son coming down the road, barely recognizable, but he knew him. He knew him. And he, he sashed up his robe, you know, girded his loins. And boy, he when it says he ran, it doesn't mean he was just doing one of those polite trots. Oh, no. I'm not going to demonstrate on stage because I jammed a wrist one time doing something like that in the old sanctuary. So I just take my word for it. He was full running like an Olympic champion, boy. He was. And, and imagine the attention that that drew to the people in the town when they said, look at there. There's Mr. Joseph. He's running like a wild turkey. And he's shouting and he's, he's rejoicing. And so we get to verse 20. The father ran and fell on his neck. And he kissed him to sign that the father is restoring fellowship right there, right there. Kissed him. And, and so the son is thinking, the speech, the speech, the speech. I got to get the speech. All right, all right, all right. Here we go. And, and so the son said, Father, I, I've sinned against you, against heaven, and over against God, and in your sight, and, and, and no longer worthy to be called your son. And, and he's going to go with the rest. Dad cut him off. Dad stopped him in midstream there. In verse 22, but the father said to his servants, bring out the best robe. You know, the robe that we always reserve for honored guests. Bring it out here. And put on him uh, and put it on him and put a ring on his hand. Probably the family signet ring, which represented authority. Just like that. The father was restoring the fellowship, giving him back a sign of, of, of being, you know, a, a person of, of, of great respect and, and put the ring that gave the family authority and sandals on his feet. He said, well, what's the big deal about sandals? Well, in a household, the servants didn't wear sandals. That was, that was kind of a, a, a special thing. And only family members wore sandals because, they, you know, they cost money. And he said, bring some sandals. And you see what the father's doing here. The father is restoring the son's fellowship. He's restoring his respect. And he says, and bring the fatted calf. Bring the fatted calf here and kill it and let us eat and be merry. This is a feast. I mean, we, we never had fatted calves. We had some cows that were pretty big, but they were milk cows. Heaven forbid we kill, you know, Bessie. Yeah, because that was our milk. But anyway, I don't know anything about a fatted calf, but I do know there were people that did pin up some cows and, you know, young cows and, 
and they feed them special grain and, and supposedly made the meat tender and made it tasty. So, yeah, so for big feast, this is the time to celebrate. This is the time. Now, you can imagine at least two or three of the Pharisees are fainted by now. Some of the others are going into convulsions. They, they're thinking, kill the son. No, we got to kill the dad. That's disgraceful. Anybody, any man would lower himself to stoop to such a level. But you see, Jesus is painting a picture of stark contrast. But look at verse 24. So telling. It's so telling of the heart of that father. He says, for this, my son. He didn't say that boy. This, my son, was dead. Do you remember I pointed out the term for the sheep that was lost would be considered dead. A boy that had gone out with this kind of wild intentions and, and out to the Gentile territory far beyond the, 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 the umbrella of the protection of, of, of Judaism and, and, and Jews uh, customs was in most people's minds, he, he's like a dead person. He's already violated all the religious laws anyway. So he's like a dead man. And so his father says, this my son was dead and is alive. How does the father know that? Spiritually, he knows his boy. He sees this same young man that left the household arrogant and selfish and prideful and, 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 and disrespectful leave and he's seeing a boy a young man rather come back who is broken and humble and he didn't have to say to his father I'll be happy to be just one of your hired hands the father could read it all over his face and stopped him this dad knew his son's heart and just like that was ready to restore his son what a celebration they said a fatted calf could typically feed the whole village. People were eating big, celebrating. There was dancing. There's music. How do we know that? Because we're going now from the parable of the joyful redemption to close out with the parable of prideful rejection. The third picture in the triptych. Parable of the prideful rejection. We get we get to verse twenty five. Where where has the older son been? You know, your older sons were usually looked up to to be the next in authority, position of authority. They they were the ones that kind of worked alongside of the father and, and had his back and helped him make administrative decisions. And you know, where was the where is the your oldest son then. He wasn't there when the, his younger brother presented this preposterous plan to take his in, inheritance. He wasn't there to defend his father's honor. He wasn't there to try to talk his, some, some sense into his younger brother. He wasn't there when all of this was transpiring. There's no indication in the parable that there was a relationship going on between this older son who would get two-thirds of the inheritance and this father. It was Neil. And so here he shows up on the scene. Verse 25, now his older son was in the field and he came and drew near to the house. He heard the music and the dancing. He says, this sounds like a community celebration. I mean, a big deal. I, how, how did I not know about this? What's going on? So he called verse 26 and he called one of the servants and he asked what these things meant. And, and the servant just, you know, because he's just thinking this is the thing I need to tell him. The servant, he said to him, your brother. That touched the nerve. Your brother has come. And because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. Your father is throwing a granddaddy community-wide celebration. And the oldest son says, oh, hallelujah, my brother's back home. I missed him so terribly. My dad's going to be so relieved. And we got so much to catch up on, and I want to help him get back on his feet. Oh, no. Oh, no. 
You're looking at prodigal son number two here, ladies and gentlemen. Verse 28, but he was angry and would not go in. I'm not going in there. That scandal in my day. I, I just, he disgusts me. He's so soft and easy and doesn't even know I'm, and so he's, he's, he's having a little tirade out there. Word gets to the father in verse 28. The father came out. What a gracious father. Even with his son acting like an idiot. He's, he's gracious to come out and plead with him to come in. In verse 29, so, so he answered. The older son just refused. He refused to celebrate his brother's restoration, to give his father the pleasure of him participating. But you know what? This, this son is just as rebellious as the one that took the money and left. The only difference was his sin was concealed deep within as the other brother acted his out. He was conceiving sins of resentfulness, selfishness, selfish ambition, disdain for his father. He was as distant from his family spiritually and emotionally as the prodigal was geographically. The only thing was it was all in here. And this touched it all. His sinful pride and condemnment attitude blinded him to his own sinfulness. That's the way it works, isn't it? So much easier to see how other people sin and make mistakes than it is to see our own. And you'll begin to see things reverse. The son that you would have thought would have been the respected son, the honorable son, turns out to be the one who is the prodigal the rebellious, dishonoring son, the older son. And the one that we just assumed like the Pharisees at the very beginning, there's no hope for that boy. He's a wild rebel. He's a, he's a squanderer of, of things and he's disrespectful. There's no hope for him. He might as well be dead. And all of a sudden, the parable brings him up. And he's close to his father. He's humble before his dad. He'll never give up, get, get over the day that his dad received him and kissed him and, and did such things to celebrate it. He'll never get over that because you know what? He's a new man. Did y'all hear me? He left as a wretched, wicked sinner. But listen, through the process of brokenness and confession and repentance, he came home. And he came home a new man. Isn't that what Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, 17? Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, the new things have come. And the father saw that. He saw that in the eyes of his son, in the voice of his son, the brokenness of his son, the humility of that prodigal. He said, this is not the same boy that left here. I have a new boy. And this, this older brother, Jesus is using the character of the older brother to portray the religious legalist who scorned Jesus. Just like in verse 2. Oh, they just, they scorned him for eating with and socializing with his tax collectors and sinners. They scorned his disciples back in chapter 5 for doing the same thing, being a part of fellowship with these tax collectors and sinners. Listen, as far as they were concerned, these people who were considered to be unrighteous like they were, they could just go to hell. I mean, literally, they they weren't brokenhearted over the losses of the, that group of people. Just like this father's older son could have cared less. If they'd have got word that his younger brother died, tragically got stabbed to death in some foreign Gentile town, he probably would have stood up that smuggler and said, that rascal got what he deserved. And so the older son not only rejected the, father, the brother's restoration, but in verse 28, coming on down to 32, after the father pleaded with, look at verse 29, he answered to his father when his father was pleading to come in and join in the celebration. He answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I have been serving you actually serving himself because the estate was given to him. He's working his own harm. He never, I said, I never transgressed your commandment at any time, not outwardly, 
But inside, he was sinning like crazy. And let you never, and yet you never gave me a young goat, much less the fatted calf, that I might make merry with my friends. You'll notice he didn't say with my family. Family squat to him. I want my buddies. You didn't give me a goat to do that. He's just unloading. I mean, there's no respect here. But as soon as this son of yours, notice you can't even use the word my brother. But as soon as this son of yours came who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you kill a fatted calf. I mean, he's, and the Pharisees and scribes of Paul said, you go, boy. You go, boy. That's exactly what we feel, too. See, Jesus is making a connection. And listen to the father. In verse 31, and he said to him, son. He didn't say, boy. Son, you are always with me. You've had access to me all these years. There's been nothing to keep you from having a love relationship, a respectful relationship with me. All these years. And all that I have is yours. And it is legally. The two-thirds that's left, it's his. Verse 32, it was right that we should make merry and be glad. Did you get that? He says, son, it was right. It's the right thing to do. It's good that we are celebrating your brother's coming home. Because look what he says. For your brother was dead. Spiritually dead. And he's alive. He's got full potential to live his life for the glory of God and bring much honor to his father and to his family. Oh, this is a reason to celebrate. He was lost. Just like that, that, that sheep out in the dark wilderness. He was lost. But he's home. And you know the thing that ached his father's heart? Was he looked in his eyes of his boy, his rebellious, scornful, disrespectful, egotistical, selfish son. And he saw he was dead. Yet you, he, it's not here, right? But the implication is your brother's alive. Talk about ironic. And here you are who had all the access to me, just like the scribes and the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, they all had access, easy access to God. But they fabricated a legalistic, superficial religious system that made them look good, that became a barrier between them and Almighty God. And they were just as lost as any tax collector or rebellious you know, it's an interesting thing. I'm closing. That's not interesting. The fact that I'm closing. The fact, the interesting fact is, Jesus doesn't tell us what the older boy, son, ever did. Did he come around to his senses and, yeah, and say, "Pooh, convicted," and said, "Dad, you're right," or did he continue on the same rebellious pattern? Dr. John MacArthur in his commentary said he believes that Jesus intentionally leaves us hanging as if to say that when Jesus finished the parable, the, the Pharisees and the scribes who were listening, they're wanting to know how did this older son you see, because they had heard time after time, just like that loving, compassionate father pleading with his son to come on in. They'd heard Jesus time after time after time say, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. I believe it touched a nerve. Who's to say there was a Pharisee or a scribe in that crowd that day 
that says, you know what? I see myself in that older brother. And what Jesus has been saying is absolutely true. And I want to have, I want to be alive. I want to have a relationship with my heavenly father. I'm, I'm just, this is Charlie's, I'm just saying. They wonder. So he leaves the religious elite wondering. Whatever happened to that older son? Or more importantly, whatever will happen with me? Have you found yourself in these parables at some point? Jesus is a master storyteller. And yet he drives deep and lasting theological messages right on into our heart. Praise God. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this day. Thank you that you have blessed us with the opportunity to come together as your people, as a family of believers. Lord, every one of us in some way was that lost sheep, that lost coin, or that prodigal son or daughter. And Lord, might we never get over the wonderful, appealing voice of our Heavenly Father, even in the darkness of our sinful activity and mindset saying with the deepest level of compassion and grace, come home. Come on home. And Lord, I know I speak for quite a few people here today who say to you, thank you, Lord. Thank you for calling me. And thank you for not giving up on me. And thank you for being that persistent seeker. It's good to be home. It's good to be alive. It's good to be a part of your kingdom. We thank you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Brother Mark, I'll ask you to come and close our services before we leave you.